grew up in uh, the 80s and 90s in Flint, Michigan, which meant I grew up drinking Flint City water. Now, some of y'all are like, oh, that's what's, I know I get it. Uh, no, no, that, that was like 30 years before the, the water crisis. That, that was uh, honestly a, a, tra- a tragedy that, that, that had very serious ramifications for a number of families and kids in Flint. But when I was growing up, uh, city water was like what we all had. And uh, I thought it was delicious. Uh, I stinking love city water. I loved going outside, pretending I was Michael Jordan all afternoon in the summer, shooting hoops, coming inside, and just turning on the cold water from the spigot and putting my mouth right underneath it, you know, get a big glass of water, drink it down. I remember, though, uh, one summer we went to visit my grandparents on my dad's side. They lived down in southern Illinois, kind of a rural uh, um, part of southern Illinois, and uh, we had been outside playing. It was hot. I was so thirsty. We came inside, and they had a pitcher in the, in the fridge and, and poured myself a nice big glass of water, and I was like, oh, and I, oh, disgusting. What is that? It tasted like, smelled like farts to begin with. It should have clued me in at the beginning, but also tasted like dirt and metal rust shavings and like all kinds of weirdness because it was country well water. My dad, I didn't spit it in the first service. I didn't know what it was going to do to my beard like that. Like, now I got. My dad, on the other hand, he took a big old gulp and was just, and he's like, what are you talking about? This is like, I was like, this is disgusting. I can't drink these. He's like, no, this is the best stuff. It's so good. It's what he grew up on. I was like, no way. City water is what tastes right. This stuff tastes gross. He's like, no, no, this stuff tastes awesome. City water tastes disgusting. And I was like, no way, Dad. The culture that you grow up in is a lot like the water that you're used to drinking. And anytime that you go and experience a different culture, it always tastes a little funny, uh, a little off to us. The culture of the Bible, the world, of the Bible is a lot like drinking water at my grandparents' house. It's so different that the first taste of it often seems gross to us. And I think that often happens when we open up the Bible and read God's instructions that are written to a culture that feels very different from our culture. And so when you drink some of that water, sometimes you think to yourself, ooh, this does not taste right. Or, oh, this is just flat out disgusting. I can't believe that they would drink water that tastes like that. My water is the right water. My water is the good water. The the funny thing is, is neither my grandparents' country well water nor my Flint city water were probably the most pure water in the world, but whatever you're used to drinking is what seems right to you. 
And so for us, living in the 21st century, when we come back to the biblical text that was written to a completely different, well, not completely different, but significantly different culture than ours, we often read things and we think to ourselves, ugh, that's gross. I can't believe that that was written in that way at that time. And we're going to experience that this morning. So with that said, open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter three. As you know, we've been walking through the book of Colossians. This is a letter that was written to a church in a uh, city that had been very prominent for uh, uh, quite a while because the trade routes ran right through it. But as a couple of other cities around Colossae began to develop and get built up, the trade route actually shifted and Colossae was no longer on that trade route and the city was beginning to lose some of its prominence. There was a group of Christians who were, some were Jewish, most were Gentile, that lived there that had begun to follow Jesus, believing in his death and resurrection and had formed a little assembly, a little church there. Paul has written a letter to them while he's in prison in Rome to help them know how to live out their faith as a follower of Christ in the culture that they were living in. Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 18. I get to talk to you this morning about wives and husbands and children and slaves and masters. This water's going to taste very different than what we're used to. And I wanna talk about why that is and what we're supposed to do with it. Shall we begin? Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Tastes a little off, doesn't it? Uh, I actually know um, folks that have read passages, this passage in particular and others similarly that that are like, man, I don't know that I can believe in a God that talks like that. I don't know that I can believe in a God that sounds like they're pro-slavery and pro-patriarchy and I had somebody write me just a couple of uh, months ago and they were um, really frustrated and sad. Uh, Their niece had gone to a Christian college. I won't tell you which one in Michigan. 
and uh, took a course on the Bible where the entire semester, the professor just looked at passages like this and other ones to try to poke holes and succeeded in eroding this woman's uh, niece's faith. The girl really wondered if she would even want to be considered a Christian anymore. You've probably experienced something like that yourself. Maybe when you were in college, maybe with a friend that was like, yo, I read part of your Bible or I, I saw this thing. Somebody told me that, that the Bible talks about like being pro-patriarchy and putting women down and, and, and being pro-slavery. You ever had a conversation with somebody that's questioned you about that or brought it up before as a reason why they could never follow that God? My guess is many of you have probably wrestled. In fact, some of you may be sitting here right now are like, yeah, man, I, honestly, like I'm here because like I'm, I'm used to going to church, but I'm not real sure what to do with all that. I'm not even sure that if that's what the Bible teaches, uh, I want to be a Christian anymore. So here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to ask you to take a little bit of a risk just with the people close to you. If that's where you're at, this morning, or if you have a friend that maybe has struggled with this, or you were in class one time and somebody began poking holes, just share a little bit of that story or that memory or that conversation with someone close to you. How do you feel about that? I'm going to give you just a minute or so just to do that, but go ahead and turn to the person next to you. And when you read this, when you hear this, what does it evoke in your own heart? Go ahead, I'll give you a second. I hope that if nothing more, you are intrigued by the fact that we're going to address this passage head on and not try to like skirt past it or skate over it. I actually think that it's incredibly important for us to engage with. I think there are some things that God desires to do in our lives, in our day, in our culture as we begin to understand what it means to follow Christ and what was written in the Bible to a very different culture still has application for us today. For us to be able to do this, though, there's a few things that we're going to need. Three in particular that I'd like to do. What do we do with a passage that tastes so off as this one does? Okay? Number one, we need to understand the culture with which in, uh, within which it was written. Number two, we need to understand the culture with which we live in. And then number three, we need to understand what God was up to in transforming and redeeming them both. Just because the ancient Roman culture tastes disgusting to you does not mean that the culture that you're used to drinking is a lot purer. Now, there are actually a ton of similarities between the ancient Greco-Roman culture and our culture today. In fact, uh, our entire uh, basis of government is somewhat founded on some similar principles. Uh, ancient Rome thought that they were the best country, empire in the world, and they, if you were Roman, you thought you were better than everybody else. Does that sound familiar, Americans? Uh, lots of similarities, but there are also some very significant differences. Um, our culture is very individualistic. The Roman culture was actually uh, built on not individualism, but on the household, okay? Uh, we have family, 
but in our families, there is almost uh, never more than two generations living under the same roof. The household in the Roman Empire actually often had multiple generations as well as uh, lots of different extended family, also slaves and servants living under maybe not exactly the same roof, but in the same compound. That was the building block, the foundation of Roman culture, the household. And the household was ruled by the pater familias, all right? Pater familias simply means the uh, uh, leader or ruler or head or owner of the family. That was usually the oldest male in the household. And they ruled everything. Everybody had to obey whatever they said. Uh, They had power over all property within the household, pretty much absolute authority over every member in it, and every member in it was obligated to obey them. Within the household, children, women, and slaves had no legal rights. Women had to obey their husbands in everything. Children could actually be sold by the father into slavery if the father decided they wanted to do that. A father could actually disown his newborn son or daughter simply if he didn't like how they looked or if they had some sort of deformity when they were born or just decided he didn't want one more mouth to actually raise or wished that he had had a son rather than a daughter. Uh, A paterfamilias could kill his slave with zero legal ramifications. A little different than our society today. The other thing that was different is there was about 5% of the population were incredibly wealthy and about 5% of the population were what we would consider middle class and 90% of the population is what we would consider poor to this day. Slavery in the Roman Empire was throughout the entire empire. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race, as it was in the American South. It was based on economic conditions. If you were poor, you could very easily find yourself being sold into slavery or being taken into slavery to pay off economic debt. In the ancient Roman world, slavery was terrible, but not as bad as the chattel slavery that the U.S. experienced for much of its existence in the South and also even many places even within the North. Uh, Slaves actually could often find themselves eventually working out of their debt and becoming free persons, but until that time, they had zero legal standing or authority at all. They were still considered uh, property of the owner. Now, just because slavery was worse in the U.S. doesn't mean that slavery still wasn't a terrible practice the world over. Let me read this quote from the NIV application commentary. It says, in the first century, slavery was an entrenched reality that the early Christians could neither change nor ignore. Paul does not sanctify slavery with these commands, but subtly undermines its very premise while encouraging obedience as an expression of loyalty to the family group. 
their water tastes really different from our water. Uh, here in the U.S., we're essentially an individualistic culture, okay? Uh, we are not connected uh, at all to the idea of a household. Uh, most of our people, uh, about 75% of Americans, consider themselves middle class, all right? That was not even an opportunity for the vast majority of individuals in the ancient Roman world. Um, Christianity is actually well known in America, even if it's uh, often highly misunderstood and disliked. Uh, in the first century ancient Roman world, Christianity was not really understood or known at all, but it was also still misunderstood and highly disliked. <laughs> Um, because we're highly individualistic here in the States, that actually means that we see value in people, young and old, male and female, black, brown, and white. We despise hierarchy in the U.S. We despise it. The idea that somebody would be more valuable or their words might mean more than my words, like we despise, that, that's in many ways an awesome thing. And it actually flows out of the fact that for, uh, uh, this gets a little tricky, because Christianity was so influential in America, the idea that we would have intrinsic value is well understood. That's actually a Christian principle that actually pulls out. In ancient Roman times, that was not the case. Those that were at the top end of the hierarchy, which is about 5% of the population, they had everything. They ruled everything. Everything worked for them. And for everybody else, you had no opportunity to actually get there. The, op, the, the, the move from being poor to possibly middle class was almost impossible. The move from middle class to upper class, also almost impossible besides only 5%. In, in America, we actually think that there's some possibility of making some movement. If you are socially, if you're socially or economically disadvantaged, you think like, if I do this, or if I work hard, if I get education, like I can potentially move up. We, we think that that's like a normal thing. Not at all a thought in the ancient Roman world. Now, uh, I get the fact that I'm like throwing all kinds of like facts and figures. What I'm trying to do is help you understand when Paul writes this letter, he's writing to a culture that has very different understanding of what is right and what is wrong, what is legal, and what is normal than you and I experience today. So when we drink a little bit of the Roman water, we go, ugh, that's disgusting. You wanna know the truth? If a Roman person got transplanted to the US and drank our water, they would feel the exact same way. Oh, that's disgusting. How can you drink that? How can you believe that? How can you live that way? So what are we supposed to do? Paul writes this letter to the Colossians because he wants to help them navigate how to live as a Christian and proclaim the gospel in their culture. And we need to understand what Paul is saying so that we can figure out how then do I apply it today? So there's three things that I think we can learn and apply. What I'm about to do right now is you're gonna feel like you're in a little bit of a class lecture the last thing you probably want. I get it, first week of school, some of y'all are starting classes, but here's what I want you to do. Don't check out on me. Instead, I want you to tune in with me, all right? I'm gonna give you three things. I'm gonna do a little bit of, short little bit of reading. You can follow along with me up on the screen, but I think that these are really important. Then once we're done with that, 
I want to explain to you why I think it's so important that we engage with texts like this to see what God is doing rather than just read them and be like, ah, gross. Cool. Number one, three things that we can learn. Number one, the instructions that Paul gives here show a special concern for the weaker or powerless members of the pair, wives, children, and slaves. You see the pairs that we had there in the text? Wives and husbands, that was one pair. In Roman society, wives were the weaker pair. Then it had fathers and children. Absolutely, in both societies, fathers are the stronger, children are the weaker pair. And then you had slaves and masters. That's the other pair, all right? In each of these pairings, Paul shows special concern for the weaker or the powerless members of the pair, okay? The rules cited do not simply reinforce the prerogatives of husbands, fathers, and masters, for the stronger parties are given duties in addition to rights. In turn, those who are expected to submit or obey are given rights as well as duties. This is shocking to the ancient Roman culture. In ancient Roman culture, if you had rights, those rights didn't necessarily come with duties. No, no, no. You're just at the top of the heap. You get to do what you want to do. You want to kill your slave? Go for it. You, you want to sell one of your kids into slavery? Go for it. You want to divorce your wife because you don't like how she looked at you that morning? Go for it. You can do whatever you want. And so when the gospel comes in and says there's a new way to live, Paul says, hey, 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 hey. No, 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 you don't have that right. We have a new model in Jesus. Now, let me continue to read. The gospel, you can read along with me, in which there is no Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female, okay, this is what he just said a couple of verses earlier, all right, recognizes each individual as a full person and is concerned to protect each person's rights not to enforce his or her subordination. Wives are to be treated with love, children with understanding, and slaves as human beings deserving of justice in a time when slaves were not legally regarded as human. These commands also address wives, children, and slaves as responsible moral beings, full members of the body of Christ. That was totally shocking. We take that for granted today. To a Roman culture, that would have been absolutely shocking. What? They're addressing women? Actually talking to women? They're addressing slaves as though they have any rights at all? Totally shocking. Let's keep going. The commands acknowledge the authority of the husband, parent, and master, but those with power must exercise it with love, sensitivity, and justice, and must be willing to take the role of servant just as Christ did. Let that sink in for just a second. You're like, ah, I still don't like the fact that he didn't just say, like, get rid of slavery. You don't like that? Yeah, me either. Mm. Me either. I don't like it either. There's a piece of me that's like, man, I wish you would have just said that. But you have to understand a couple of things. One, where's Paul writing from? I said it earlier. Where's he writing from? Jail. That's right. Paul's in jail. Does anybody know why he's in jail? He's been accused of trying to overthrow society. Okay? <laughs> that's why he's in jail. All right? Paul is writing letters that are incredibly subversive in that culture. 
do you think that the jailers are looking at his letters before they go out? 1,000%. Now, Paul's never hid any of the things that he's been saying. Paul was very upfront with what he believed about Christ and how Christ is intended to set us free and that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. The gospel is subversive. The gospel is intended to transform, redeem, change the culture with which in it finds itself. And it will and is going to do that here in the ancient world of Rome to the letter to the Colossians. But Paul also wants that to happen here in America, 2023. Our water is not as pure as we think. It's just the taste that we're used to. Let's keep going. Number two. Domination of others is prohibited according to what Paul writes here, according to the gospel, okay? The basic premise is that every Christian member of a family is equal as a recipient of God's grace. Now, uh, Dr. Garland says this, we cannot eliminate the exercise of power from human relationships, nor can we eliminate the need for guidelines in relationships. Some are tasked with taking a leadership role as a necessary barrier against complete turmoil. Others at times need to voluntarily yield their freedom of choice to others. We do this all the time, by the way, in the States. The power that any leader in God's family has is given to them by the yielding parties, not taken from them. This would have been a shocking understanding within Roman thought. To our ears, we're like, well, duh, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world, of course. But back then, this was revolutionary. It was, it was mind-blowing that Paul would say that slaves and women and children have rights. Not only do they have rights, they have duties Simply acknowledging that they have duties means that they are a free moral agent in and of themselves. What Paul is doing is subverting the very foundation of some of the things that the Roman culture held near and dear and actually built their entire society on because that's what the gospel does. Let's keep going. Number three, the motivation for the behavior is distinctly Christian. It didn't have anything to do with the created order or the so-called natural order or just look around you. You can see how everything functions and there's nothing you can do about it and therefore just try to live in harmony with it. No, no, no. Look what Dr. Garland says. He says, these commands do not tell us how to order families, but focus on the Christian motivation behind our family, uh, behind our family relationships. In other words, how we relate to others. Every member of a family, no matter the station, must allow Christ's lordship to control his or her interpersonal relationships. Thus, what is fitting in the Lord, remember when he said that? As is fitting in the Lord, okay? Is the hermeneutical key, which just means the way that we understand and, okay, uh, um, the way that we like interpret. It's the hermeneutical key for bridging these instructions to our modern context. This phrase is not a pious platitude attached to the prevailing cultural patterns to bless the status quo. Putting our family relationships under the microscope of what is fitting and the Lord always challenges and renews them. Our model is how Christ submitted himself to God. So let me say this and you need to hear it because it's possible that you read this text and miss this. Paul and the New Testament, the entire Bible, 
is not pro-slavery. Paul, the entire New Testament, the Bible, is not pro-patriarchy. Paul, the New Testament, the entire Bible, is not pro-domination nor pro-exploitation. Dr. Garland goes on to say, if we seek to read the scriptures using a method of interpretation or a hermeneutic of trust as opposed to suspicion, we can see how Christ's lordship subtly deconstructs old habits of domination and exploitation in every culture. The principles underlying these instructions, submission, love, service, obedience, conscientious work, justice, and fairness transcend cultural limits and are applicable in any age. This is what the Bible is about. What Paul is doing is reminding us what Jesus did. What he spoke about, what he lived, and what he ultimately died showing us. That whatever power you have, whether in the form of resources or education or anything at all, is to be used for the sake of others, not for yourself. Jesus left everything behind in heaven, came to earth, took on the form of us, human flesh, and served us even dying in our place. You wanna know what real leadership in the Christian church and the Christian family is supposed to look like? It's not about what you get from whatever power and authority you might have. It's about what you give and how you use it to serve. And friends, I'm telling you, there is a world outside these windows that is dying to see if that kind of Christianity will actually exist. Because everybody out there, and many of us in here, myself included, are often looking to see what we have and how we can use it for ourselves, for our own pleasure, for our own glory, for our own gain. And what Paul is telling the Colossians and what it means for you and I is that we're supposed to have a different law. It's a law of love, a law of willingness to sacrifice what I have for the sake of others, of laying down my life, of submitting one to another, of using whatever leadership, whatever authority, whatever resources I have, not for my own comfort and gain, but for the sake of others. That's the Christianity that Jesus died for and was resurrected unto, and that's what we're supposed to be going after. Now, last week I was watching National Geographic, and I told my uh, staff this this past week, and they all started laughing at me. Like, dude, how old are you? You thinking watch National Geographic? I don't care what you think. I love National Geographic. It's awesome. I like history, okay? And this one was on the Mayan Empire. And I do, I dig, like, I, I keep watching all these ones on, like, ancient Egypt and the Mayan. I think it's really, really interesting. And what they thought for a long time, scientists, is that the Mayan Empire, based on the, the, the ruins that we have found and uh, um, what they think those, like, cities could have held, they think that the Mayan Empire, at its peak, had probably about a million people, okay? About three or four years ago, there was a, a new technology that came out called LIDAR, that you can put in an airplane, and what it does is it, it stands for something, I couldn't remember, it's like light and something, I don't know, but it's like lasers. They, they fly over the jungle, they drop lasers down, shoot stuff back up, and they're basically able to map the jungle floor like an x-ray where they can kind of get rid of all the trees and they can see what's below. 
And so uh, this is kind of what they first saw. You fly over the Guatemalan jungle, and it looks like that. And you're like, well, it's just the, you know, flat, barren jungle. But when they did LIDAR, look at what they found. All of those structures. Now, there was a couple of the temples that were kind of peeking up, and so they knew they were there. What they realized, though, is they have LIDAR mapped the entire now Guatemalan jungle and some other areas, is that the Mayan empire was way bigger, way more vast than they ever could have imagined. They actually think it was 10 times bigger than what they originally thought. But the only way that they're able to really know if what they see, because anytime that they see uh, things, all right, see how you can see the temple on the top left of the green, okay? Like, all right, we know that exists. You fly over, you see that. All those other pieces are all covered. They had no idea. So anytime they see something with right angles, they know right angles don't usually occur naturally. So that's usually man-made. Whenever you see a right angle, generally that's man-made. And so what they had to do then is actually get into the jungle and start looking around. You can't just do it because... It's possible that those are not actually man-made. You don't know until you're actually, so you got to get boots on the ground. So they would send these guys, these explorers down in there that knew the landscape and could get through. And the other thing that they had to have is they had to have some experts. So you got LIDAR, kind of like, yes, we think this is something here. Then you actually get boots on the ground, right? And then you have an expert that's like, oh, that, that right there is a cut stone. We know that that was man-made. Oh, now we can see where the path actually is. Because these cut stones kind of show, oh, they actually lead to this mound that looks like just a big hill. No, it's not. Look, there's one small stone here. You start uncovering it. It's actually an entire temple structure that's there. All these things begin to open up and you can see them. Same thing's true of the Bible. Look, you, you will hear folks at times say like, oh, I read this. And it's pro-slavery. It's pro-patriarchy. It, it, it's, it's about the subjugation of women. It's so backwards. How can you ever believe in a God that, that's about that? That's somebody that's flying over the jungle and happens to see one or two small little things. They see, told you. But when you've got the Holy Spirit that begins to unveil what's below the canopy, when you've got uh, actual boots on the ground, when you spend time in God's word, reading it, like actually reading it, not just skimming little pieces of it. When you've got experts that can help you understand that like, no, no, that, that's, there's a cultural thing going on in ancient Rome that Paul had to speak into. And when we begin to take these three things and we unearth what's actually going on, we see a God that's not trying to subjugate people, is actually trying to set them free. That's what Jesus said, I came to give life and life to the full. You see, the gospel is a filter on all of our water. It's a filter on the ancient culture of Rome that was messed up and had all kinds of things wrong with it. It's a filter on our water that tastes normal to us, but we've got all kinds of messed up things on ours as well. And it's about understanding what Christ did, what he came to do. And when we begin to understand that, all of a sudden, these little things, somebody's like, oh, man, I read this, and it said that. And you're like, whoa, no, 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 you just, you didn't get it. You just saw a little tip of the, of the temple. You, you didn't see all the rest of the stuff. You didn't understand how it all works together, what God's actually up to. And so I simply wanted to say this to you today. Anytime that you come across something that you take a swig and it tastes funny, you don't have to freak out. 
especially those of you that are starting classes at university right now, those of you upperclassmen in high school, where you might have somebody try to make some of these arguments, like, ah, I read this passage in Colossians, and eh, pro this and pro that, and you don't have to freak out. Know this. The work of the Holy Spirit over the last 2,000 years of the church, along with experts, and you actually spending some, getting some boots on the ground in, in, the, in the Bible, will begin to unveil that there's more to it than just a little snippet that you saw. That what Paul's actually doing is shockingly subversive to the culture. And when we understand what Paul is doing by saying Jesus is our example and our model, we begin to realize that it's shockingly subversive to our culture as well. Paul wants the gospel to be a filter that transforms you and I, transforms our culture, but we have to dive in and get to know it and understand it. So, I'm gonna close by saying this. God wants to transform the taste of every culture. God's instructions are like a filter that when properly applied, purifies our cultural water in a way that not only quenches our thirst, but makes our lives flourish. It's what he wants for each of us, my friends. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that in your wisdom, Holy Spirit, you had Paul write how the Colossians were supposed to live in a culture that was very much different and opposed to who you were and what you're about. And Jesus, it's easy for us 2,000 years later to think that we're so much better, but God, our we know our culture is awfully messed up too. We might not colonize with armies anymore, but we colonize with our culture and with our economics. We identify with the Romans. We might not say it out loud, but we kind of think that we're better than everybody else. And Jesus, you are reminding us that we are all equal at the foot of the cross, that we are all in need of a savior. And that this life is not about us. This life is about others. How we can serve that the greatest among us is a servant to all, as you said. Your kingdom, Jesus, is an upside down kingdom. The first are last and the last are first. And God, I will admit it is hard for me to live in that kingdom. I find myself living in the one that I'm used to here in America. But Jesus, you're trying to transform my heart, my soul. You're trying to transform each of ours. We give you permission. Keep doing it. Allow us to keep trusting that your word and your way is better, is best. And it is what our world is thirsty for. Let us be people who are willing to give others a drink of that water. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.